Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker, and I am an author, speaker, and professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. And I really love having these geeky conversations with people about new things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, We know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. This week, I sit down with Dr. Nicholas Shazer, who is the professor of Hebrew Bible at Israel Bible Center, and we talk about his course called The Jewish Gospel of Matthew. We already talked about what we learned from the genealogy in Matthew 1 and the scripture battle Jesus has with Satan in the wilderness. We even discussed the Sermon on the Mount and how the words of Jesus almost sound anti-Torah until you hear them within the context of Pharisaic life. If you missed any of these two gems, go back and listen to the episodes that you missed. And then subscribe, like, or follow this podcast on any of the podcast platforms you're listening on so that you don't miss any more episodes. For this final episode of 2020, I asked Dr. Shazer about the final week of Jesus's life as it is portrayed in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew 16, Jesus and the disciples are all the way north in Caesarea Philippi, and then they slowly make their way south through Galilee to the Rift Valley, down to Jericho, up through the Judean wilderness, and finally over the top of the Mount of Olives to enter the city of Jerusalem. I asked Dr. Shazer what picture Matthew is painting for us in this narrative. Yeah, very good. So Jesus comes into the city riding on a donkey. He even tells his disciples to go get that donkey. So he's very willfully fulfilling scripture here. And the scripture he's fulfilling is Zechariah 9.9. It's another verse that's pretty easy to remember, Mm 9.9. Behold, your king comes to you meek and lowly riding on a donkey. So Jesus is like going out of his way to do that, to rerun that in his own life. And it's interesting about this text is in later Jewish tradition in in the Talmud, which is a commentary on that text that I talked about before the Mishnah. The Talmud says, you know, ask the question, well, okay, Zechariah 9.9 says that Jesus, that Jesus, that that the Messiah, okay, that the the figure that they're expecting is going to come meek and lowly riding on a donkey. That's Zechariah 9.9. But then it also says in Daniel chapter 7, coming with the clouds of heaven. And so which one is it? This sounds like a, uh, a contradiction. And the conclusion in the Talmud is, well, if Israel is uh, fully righteous, then he'll come on the clouds of heaven. And if they're not fully righteous, then he'll come meek and lowly riding on a donkey. Now, the interesting thing about that is that Matthew cites Zechariah 9.9, Jesus does come in meek and lowly riding on a donkey. And then during his trial, he's asked if he's the the Messiah, the son of the blessed one. And Jesus says, Mm -hmm. you'll see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. That's citing Daniel chapter 7. And so, um, what Matthew is saying, it's not either or. It's not that the Messiah is going to come depending on where we are in our righteousness or meritoriousness. Rather, it's one and the same. 
Hmm. First, Jesus enters Jerusalem, meek and lowly riding on a donkey, and then will essentially return in in the parousia, coming with the clouds of heaven. Hmm. So that's, yeah, it's a big and kind of bombastic way of of Matthew presenting Jesus in terms of God. Because in in Zechariah, it's God who says, Hmm. your Hmm. king comes to you, meek and lowly riding. Yeah, so it's it's a pretty uh, it's pretty amazing, and then the people are yelling Hoshana in Aramaic, yes. which means you know, Lord save us. And Jesus is going to do very that. Uh, he's going to do that exactly when he dies on the cross. This is also interesting because culturally, I mean, we think of riding on a donkey or having a donkey in terms of poor farmers who have a donkey, but in terms of a person riding on a donkey into a city was more of a regal idea than riding on a horse, which would have been like a declaration of war almost. Have you heard this before? I didn't even know that. Yeah. There's this idea that the one who arrives and is on a donkey, you can't fight from a donkey. (laughs) And so Mm. it's already a declaration of having taken the city. Which Mm, adds another really interesting, along with the Zechariah reference, goes along with all of the people watching him do that and then shouting, Hoshana, Hoshana, which then you can start to see why maybe some Roman soldiers in the Antonia Fortress would look a little nervously towards the Mount of Olives. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. That makes a lot of sense. Oh, that's cool. Right after Jesus comes in riding on a donkey, he goes into the temple and we get this, at least for from Matthew's perspective, this is one of the times Jesus cleanses the temple. So do those things have anything to do with each other? And it, if so, what? Like, why, why does Matthew need to put that event right after this grand procession? Yeah, it's interesting. So uh, again, it's a quotation of Zechariah. Zechariah in that in that section, like nine through fourteen, there's a lot of temple talk. There's a lot of mm-hmm. making the people of Israel, uh, you know, righteous, and uh, even the even the bulls and stuff in Israel and in the, in the eschaton will have God's name on them. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so there's a lot of like temple-y, sacrificially language in that section of Zechariah. So it makes sense for Jesus to go into the temple. And oftentimes in in Christian tradition, people read this as like an indictment of the temple itself. Something like, Jesus doesn't like temple sacrifices. And Jesus is really saying, oh, I'm going to be the one who's sacrificed. So let's get rid of this temple complex and Hmm. this hegemonic institution, right? But, But if we read this in the context of the gospel, it seems like Matthew's doing something very different. Jesus goes in and says, you know, my house will be, should be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. That's a quotation from Isaiah 56, House of mm-hmm. Prayer, and Jeremiah chapter 7, 11, uh, Den of Robbers. So Jesus is actually doing something not against the temple, but trying to save the temple and make it into the house of prayer that it should be. So it's not an anti-temple moment from Jesus. Moreover, the Greek word that Matthew uses for Jesus driving out the money changers is a Greek word called ekbalo. Ekbalo is made up of two words. It means out of, ek, and balo mm-hmm. means to throw. So he's throwing these people out. What's interesting about that is Ekbalo, the vast majority of the time in Matthew's gospel, uh, appears when Jesus is casting out demons from people's Hmm. bodies. Hmm. And so what Jesus is doing here with the temple is performing a symbolic exorcism (laughs) on the temple to save the structure of the temple. Hmm. It's not an anti-temple move at all. Uh, Just as Jesus exercises demons from humans, Jesus is Ekbaloing those who who make it a den of robbers, hmm. you know, drawing on Jeremiah. Yeah. 
and actually, if you go back to read the context of Jeremiah, it's really important. The den of robbers, it, sometimes people think in terms of, okay, the den of robbers, people are robbing from the temple <laughs> treasury right, or something. Right. That is going into the temple and robbing from it. But in Jeremiah's original context, the idea of a den of robbers is a place of refuge that a, ro- a robber would go after burglarizing something, after stealing something. So what Jesus is saying is, and, and Jeremiah indeed is saying this too, in your daily life, you steal and rob and murder and hurt. And then you come back to the temple and you think you'll be safe here. You've made it into a den of robbers. So Jesus' problem isn't on the temple grounds with the money changing and stuff. You need to change money because people come from out of town and need to sacrifice things at the temple. The, the point is, is that the problem is what, what's being done outside the temple grounds and then being brought back in hmm. to the temple grounds, thinking that that's going to save you. So there's Jesus' critique. So it's not an anti-temple critique. It's not even a, a, a critique of what it precisely is going on in the temple itself. Jesus thinks that God lives in the temple. And yeah. Jesus is quite right, right. to say that. Right. Jesus says in Matthew 23 that anybody who swears by the temple swears by it and the one who dwells in it. That's God. So if, if the temple's God's house, Jesus is not against the temple. This is right. a specific critique drawing on the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah. And, and Jesus, I think, is is trying to save the the temple from those yeah. who would pollute it, essentially. And just to bring archaeology into this conversation, just a, a little tiny bit, the archaeology right around the Temple Mount has these big, massive, huge streets that were lined with stalls. And so to a certain extent, we could almost say as well, all that secular activity of buying and selling and and trading money or exchanging money should be happening down on the street. Mm. And then God's house being a place of sacredness. And mm. there, there's a, an awful lot of blending of those things that seems to also be going on, which would then rightfully need an exorcism to happen. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. no, that's that's very cool. That, 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 um, yeah, I'm glad that you, you added that in. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely ha- there, there's something going on with the finances and things, but it's not the idea of exchange or right. buying and selling. Exactly. I mean, it, Jesus says he Jesus overturns the tables of the those who who sold pigeons. Well, that comes from Leviticus. That's Leviticus chapter five, and that's for the poor people who can't afford a sheep mm. or a ram or whatever that they buy pigeons. Mm. So. Jesus can't be against the the exchange of pigeons. That's not the problem. But Cindy, as you write, as you note, it, it could well be that it's a location problem. Get it down on the street level if you're going to be doing that. Right, Don't right. do it within the, I guess, the temple courts if you want. Yeah. yeah. This is killing me because we have to skip so many good things about the political, religious, and geographical context of these events. I cover it in my new book coming out on January 1st called Encountering Jesus in the Real World of the Gospels. But I also deal with it in a new course at IBC called Listening to the Land of the Bible Part 2. For now, I want to bring up something that seems contrary to the idea of the Jewishness of the Gospel of Matthew, and I am confident that Dr. Shazer can clarify things for us. And this comes down to the trial of Jesus, where he is first tried in Caiaphas's house. There seems to be like, it's a little interesting because the timeline with all the different gospels is is a smidge off <laughs> with everyone. But That's right. in Matthew in particular, when they are in the courts at Pilate's court in the Praetorium um, and Pilate is giving people an option, Barabbas or Jesus, and 
And the crowds are yelling, may his blood be on us and on our children. And that has been used as a very anti-Semitic type of a idea and a lot. But if the gospel of Matthew is so Jewish, what's a better way for us to understand how Matthew is portraying the trial of Jesus? Yeah, that's a great question. So traditionally, it's been thought that when the people, this is Matthew 27, 25, when the people cry out, may his blood be upon us and upon our children, and they sort of condemn him to crucifixion. Traditionally, New Testament scholars have said, you know, that's uh, that's just, it means it's all over for the Jewish people. It's all over for Israel. They've, they've cursed themselves and their children, which means they perpetually cursed themselves uh, forever. Um, this, of course, has led to extreme anti-Jewish violence yeah. from Christians over the centuries. Um, it's really, really bad. I mean, I think of, of any of any verse, this has probably been the one that's done the most damage to Jewish-Christian relations. But I would just want to say, well, okay, so if this is the moment that Jesus, you know, rejects or the, the people of Israel are rejected, what happens to Matthew 121, which is Matthew's thesis of the whole gospel? You'll call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That word for people in Greek is laos, and everywhere in Matthew, laos always and only refers to the Jewish people. Hmm. Indeed, Jesus himself says twice in Matthew chapter 20, 10 and Matthew chapter 15, I've come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So now, at Jesus' death, if they are able to condemn themselves and not be saved from their sins, Jesus loses. <laughs> Why right. on earth would Matthew present Jesus That's losing? Right. Yeah. Not fulfilling what Jesus was sent to do. Tell us. Uh, so, yeah. So a better way to look, a, a better way to look at it is just to say, okay, his blood be upon us and upon our children. That's Matthew twenty seven twenty five. Uh, less than a chapter beforehand, in twenty six twenty eight, Jesus says at the Last Supper, "This is my blood of the covenant that I'm pouring out for the forgiveness of sins." Hmm. So, in context, the very blood that these people are calling upon them when they condemn Jesus to death is the forgiving blood of Jesus. Jesus needs to get to that cross and get his bloodshed, okay? So that is, they are ironically calling upon themselves and their children perpetually Jesus's blood that saves from them from their sins. That is, this is the slam dunk moment for Matthew. This is where Matthew 121, he'll save his people from their sins, comes into fruition. And actually, the, the language here, all the people, pas holaos, all the people cried out, his blood be upon us, that phrase, all the people, also shows up in a very important place in the Septuagint, which is Exodus chapter 24, where mm -hmm. Moses is ratifying his own covenant, the, the Mosaic covenant, and says to the people, he's got a big basin of blood next to him, and he says to the people, you know, will you follow all this stuff in the Torah? And the people, all the people, says the Greek, pasolaos, same phraseology in mm -hmm. Matthew, mm -hmm. they call out, yes, whatever God says we'll do and we'll be obedient. And what does Moses do? splashes the blood on the people and says, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made mm. with you. Same exact phrase that we see in, mm. this, in the Last Supper in Matthew. So what's happening? Matthew is saying, just as Moses ratifies the first covenant, the Torah, with, by pouring the blood on the people and the people calling in the, it upon themselves, all the people, so too Jesus is doing the same thing. So maybe ironically, unbeknownst to them, the people are actually entering into the salvific covenant with Jesus, even though they may not know it. Again, huh. this is how Jesus wins the chess match, as it yeah. were. If Jesus' blood is not salvific here, then Jesus loses. That is an impossible reading. Hmm. I love that. Thank you for explaining that. It's, it makes the whole gospel of Matthew a lot more consistent. 
right. know, and again, it's just turning on its head the way maybe people have heard things in the past or just the really superficial reading of the text, which deserves to be paid careful attention to. Yes, exactly. Yeah, definitely. And there's so much more involved in this. And I go to, into it in, in my course. Yeah. I'm actually in the midst of writing a book on this, a whole chapter is dedicated in my book to this idea. So oh, we, we, get more in, we get more into this and there's a lot more reason to think that this is the best reading right. of the material and that the traditional anti-Jewish reading is just an acontextual right. and, and speculative interpretation. Right. Well, I feel like as we draw to a close that... I don't think we can really leave it with the trial, although it was a very victorious moment that you just brought us through. But there is the resurrection and Matthew himself ends this gospel with what Christian communities call the Great Commission. So maybe as we finish this podcast episode, we can finish by talking about the way that Matthew finishes his own gospel. Perfect. Yep. This is a a very... um... Also a triumphant moment for Matthew. This is Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, which, as you said, Cindy, is usually called the Great Commission. And Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. That is yet another nod to Daniel chapter 7, Mm -hmm. in which the one like a son of man receives authority and power and dominion over the whole world. And, And so Jesus is calling on that again and saying, okay, so now, insofar as I've got all this authority and I've been raised from the dead, I'm ascending you out. To be, to be my witnesses and to teach people everything that I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. And that's how Matthew's gospel ends. So as I mentioned a couple different times where we looked at, looked at how Jewish and Israel-centric Matthew is on the whole, and Jesus saying explicitly, you know, I've only come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And Jesus saving his people, Israel, from their sins in his death. All of this is extremely Israel-centric. And it's at the end of the gospel where Jesus says, okay, now I've done what I came to do, and now it's up to you. Go to all the ethne, all the nations, and teach them the same thing. So this is the moment where all the, all the Gentiles also are brought into this very Israel-centric story. And it's the, it's the opportunity for people of other nations to really participate in this very Jewish presentation. You know, in Christian tradition, it didn't take long for the early church fathers, the people running, the Gentiles running the early church, to kind of say, oh, we know, okay, we're trying to figure out our own identity here as Christians, but here's the one thing we know we're not. We're not Jews. Okay. So that is, they, they kind of unlinked the, the Tanakh, the Israel story, mm-hmm. a Jewish tradition, Jewish custom, Jewish worship, they unlinked that from the Christian experience. What, what Matthew was saying at the end of the gospel in a very beautiful way is, no, 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 we're not unlinking. Everything Jesus yeah. didn't said before, all that Jewish stuff, now Gentiles get to participate in that as Gentiles. That is, they get to follow the God of Israel and really step into the world of mm-hmm. all of this wonderful Judaica you know, we talked about the festivals, we talked about the Torah, we talked about Moses, we talked about all that history. Hmm. And Gentiles get to experience this too. I mean, it, it's absolutely not this idea of unlinking Christianity from Judaism. Hmm. For Matthew, what, what Matthew wants, what Jesus and Matthew wants, is Gentiles who essentially worship, are, are how about this, Gentiles who are Jewish, right. okay? 
That is, they're not Jews themselves. They don't right. become the people of Israel or anything like right. that. There's no, the church is not the new Israel in any way. New Israel, in fact, is a term that never shows up anywhere in the pages of the New Testament. What's Matthew saying? You know, the church doesn't replace Israel. You Gentiles are lucky enough to, yeah. to be able to enter into this story now with us mm-hmm. alongside Israel. And there's a, a bigger, a big umbrella, a big tent now, right, where both the nations and Israel side by side worshiping the God of Israel together. And that's what the Great Commission is getting at. Thank you for joining us for this conversation about the Jewish Gospel of Matthew. There are so many things we could have covered but didn't cover. And because this is the season of giving, I will add a short off-the-cuff conversation I had with Dr. Shazer right before we started officially recording the episode. But first, thank you for joining us this week on the Israel Bible Podcast. If you like what you hear in the podcast, sign up for this course or go explore your way around Israel Bible Center's flagship certificate program on the Jewish context and culture. Or follow the link in the episode notes to find out how you can get this and many other courses with one small monthly subscription. And as a thank you for listening to this podcast and for telling other people about it, use the coupon code ISRAEL when you register and you'll receive free surprises. I hope you have a really fantastic and safe holiday season. We are taking one week off, but we will be back in the new year to talk about more interesting courses at IBC. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald with Mason Jar Music for mixing, editing, and crafting all of the good sounds that you hear. And thank you for being curious about the world of the Bible. And as promised, here is the short conversation about the story of one of the Gentiles Matthew added to his gospel. She one-ups Jesus, essentially, but this is standard, like, teacher-student rhetoric. Um, we get this in the Talmud, too, of, like, Rabbi Judah getting one-upped by one of his disciples in this in a similar way. Um so she, yeah, I mean, he, he definitely says your faith is strong and your child is healed, but it's funny in, in Mark, he goes into Tyre and Sidon and goes into somebody's house and, and hides out there. In Matthew, it says that she comes out to, he goes to the border. She comes out to him. It's not hmm. even clear that Matthew has Jesus going into a Gentile area. Hmm. Hmm. I, I think Matthew's doing everything he can to retain this, I've only come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel trope. But he doesn't want to lose the Mark in Mark chapter 7 Syrophoenician woman. So, I mean, he is still choosing to put her in. Yeah, it screws up the whole thing. It's a temporal thing. It's not necessarily about ethnicity. Jesus isn't like anti-Gentile. It's just that for Matthew, it happens after he's raised from the dead. It can't happen before that because it bungles up the whole temporal situation. So... It's just, I hear so many very weird and strange things that people do with that text, you know, and the whole, and again, to be discussed, but is Jesus calling her a dog? It's just all those things that makes it seem a little bit messy, but I don't right. actually think that he's he's brushing her aside. And I don't think he's being outright offensive towards her. I think yeah. there's- well, you know, in, Ma- in Matthew, he doesn't even want to talk to her. He, he doesn't even say anything to her. His disciples His have disciples, to say, this yeah. woman is talking to you. So he wasn't even going to respond <laughs> initially. That is, and again, he tells her outright, I've only come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Stop. Don't, 
I'm not interested in this discussion. So I think Matthew, yeah, Matthew's just very Israel-centric. I think that Matthew, for Jesus, when Jesus dies, Matthew only really cares about saving Israel from their sins. Hmm. And I think that John responds to that saying that God so loved the whole world, Matthew. What are you, what are you talking Matthew. about? Right? <laughs> but I, yeah, no, I, I don't think that Matthew has much of a purview for, I mean, certainly not Gentile salvation because they've got their own gods and their own rules and they're not sinning against the God of Israel if they're not following the Torah. They don't follow the Torah in the first place. So yeah, yeah I just think it's just a different take on Jesus. <laughs> 